John Summers is the motoring historian. He was a company car thrashing technology sales rep that turned into a fairly inept sports bike rider. Hailing from California, he collects cars and bikes built with plenty of cheap and fast and not much reliable. On his show, he gets together with various co-hosts to talk about new and old cars, driving, motorbikes, motor racing, and motoring travel. Good day, good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to uh, The Motoring Historian with me, John Summers. This is an extra episode, it's quite shorter than all of the other ones. This is the vignettes and non sequiturs which didn't make the Ferrari at the Mille Miglia pods that appear on, on the Grand Touring Motorsport website here with William and Eric too. Yeah, so that's the contents of today. Music-wise, whenever people talk about Ferrari, they always have opera don't they? But I mean, to me, it's it's not that. If you look at the cars, they were dirty and grimy in period. And, and Modena was a industrial city. And although Ferrari liked opera, the things he built, they didn't seem that operatic to, to me. So we've got Motorhead, basically, with Megadeth's homage to speeding, 502, but mostly Motorhead and, and mostly the sense of that wall of sound, which really sets uh, set Motorhead apart years ago. And other bands, I think, have tried to emulate, but have not done uh, have not done successfully. Because to me, right, 150 miles an hour on the open road, my word, this is not for the faint-hearted. This is not Rigoletto. This is Motorhead. Iron Child out of Vulcan's Forge. Metal screaming thrash. Thank you, drive through. Iron Child out of Vulcan's Forge. Metal screaming thrash. It's an interesting parallel that can be drawn with the Porsche family as well, because if you think about it, you know, a lot of Germans, Austro-Hungarians, uh, all the people from Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, all those areas that are now, you know, under different names that were absorbed by Germany were forced to become part of the party or die, right? It's sort of like the board, resistance is futile, but yep. Porsche, just like Ferrari, kept himself at arm's length, although under contract to build the Volkswagen, to build the Beetle, right? That started in the 30s. It's a whole other story there, too. Interesting how two of the greats, their stories are so similar at the end of the day right and then took off post-war in a very similar way because only car manufacturers could build agricultural equipment and get the countries back on their feet again that's what really brought europe back into fruition and then from there they were able to take the money from building the tractors you know don't watch the lamborghini movie but take it to the next level and build their empires based on that agrarian society, which brought Europe back onto its feet. It's always interesting to compare Ferrari and Porsche, even though they've been rivals from the bitter beginning, but how similar their life stories are. I would say, Eric, that's something of a strain because I feel like Ferrari, yeah, sure, he did his machine tools. And there's a line in his memoirs, isn't there, about how when the Nazis came and looked at it, they said that they'd carry on using his machine tools because his copy was as good as the ones that they were making. Uh, so, you know, there's there's that. So he did the machine tools. Then when, when he was bombed the first time, didn't he then move out to Marinello and then start doing ball bearings? And there's ball bearings out there. So I, I would say that ball bearings aren't quite as significant a contribution to the war effort as designing the best tank of the Second World War, a rotating gun turret 
as well as the Volkswagen Beetle. I feel like that was, you know, somebody who was working under duress. He would seem to be very productive. Uh, tomato, tomato. Well, you know what's <laughs> interesting too, and the ball bearings. You know, he was making. He copied off of um, what's his name in the UK? Oh, Vandervel. Yes, Vandervel. He oh, copied wow. those. Yeah, that's all he did. He's basically just copied those. That's all he did. <laughs> Whilst we're down this sort of little rat hole, I only learned this very recently. Tony Vandervel creates the Van Wall. The Van Wall becomes the first successful British Formula One car. It gives rise to the whole garagista culture of the 60s and, and the 70s. That Van Wall engine, it was four Norton motorcycle engines fixed together. Vandervel had watched Norton, the Italians doing all these MV four cylinders and so on, and Norton still beating them by tuning the bejesus out of this single that they'd got. And he thought, well, I'll just put four of those together and see if that can beat Ferrari in a Formula One car as well. And after a little bit, sure enough, uh, sure enough, it did. Lucky Brits with your ingenuity making yeah. gold out of garbage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but what that, doesn't that speak to sort of what we're, what we're thinking about almost with ourselves and, and the Chinese at the moment, that really what we're talking about is that in Britain at that time, there was engineering thought leadership, right? Or at least Vanderbilt had engineering thought leadership, which other nations looked to copy. And since that time, that engineering leadership baton has passed. How and when that passes and what causes that to pass, that's really interesting. And it means that this conversation about Ferraris, about more than, you know, just fast cars and, and, and motor races. Or tractors, but yes. Or, tra or tractors, yeah, or, or tractors. <laughs> Ferrari never made tractors, though, did he? He made the ball bearings. Porsche made tractors. Lamborghini made tractors. There are Ferrari tractors from way back when, yes, just like Lamborghinis. And the, the whole story about Lamborghini with Ferruccio is that he couldn't buy a tractor from Ferrari. He wouldn't sell him one. So he said, basically, go shove it up your tailpipe. And he made his own, right? And then it oh. became the car thing. Oh, I thought it was the business lunch in Bologna. Ferruccio's bought a Ferrari, approaches sees Ferrari at the business lunch, approaches him. Yeah, that's the whole story they told in the movie about how the clutches were terrible. Yeah. The story that I learned that I read and, and was told was that Ferruccio had gone to Enzo to buy a tractor because Ferrari and Fiat and whatever, because they were existing under the fascist regime, designated manufacturers, engineering companies, whatever, just like Porsche was, they were allowed to build the equipment to get Europe back on its feet. That's why I'm saying it draws a parallel between Ferdinand Porsche and Enzo, because Ferrari and Porsche were building tractors, and that's where they made their money. And at the time, Lamborghini had gone to Enzo to buy a tractor, and he wouldn't sell him one. Whatever's truth, fact, fiction, or myth, or otherwise, I don't know, but that's the story that I learned versus the other one which i've also heard and i'm just like really seriously okay <laughs> well, so, so so my understanding of that one is of the, the bologna business meeting yeah. story is that lamborghini complains to ferrari about the clutch ferrari says something along the lines of what do you know about cars tractor maker it may have been more polite it may have been less polite than that but it was something along those kind of, of lines. And Lamborghini's so incensed, he decides he will go out and build something better, which is a wonderful creation myth. 
but has the feel of a creation myth rather than a true story. My aside to that was that Ferrari himself, apparently when there was heavy traffic, he wouldn't sit in it. He would just park the car at the side of the road, get a coffee and wait for the traffic to clear. The point being that, yes, of course, you would just fit a race. You would fit a racing clutch, wouldn't you? A racing clutch is better at any point when you're not in traffic if you don't sit in traffic. So once again, I'm building cars for a racing driver. I'm not building cars for a road driver or a tractor maker. It's that beautiful Italian logic, right? That's why don't you need a racing clutch in your streetcar? Of course, it, it just makes sense. <laughs> but that all, all jokes aside. Bugatti had forgotten where he buried all his cars too, right? So they were still trying to figure all that out. <laughs> I didn't know about that. The story of the 57G tank, it was buried underground and they forgot where they buried it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole hey, different oops. That's a whole different <laughs> podcast. William and I were talking about a guy called Lou Brero, who I had some contact with some years ago. And, and famously, Lou Brero supposedly had a car that Ascari had used in the 1953 Mille So after that, it had come to America, been bought by Brero's father. And then Brero had raced it. And then in the 80s, when there was the classic car boom, lots of people had come trying to buy it off him. And every person who came to see him, he agreed a higher price. And then when the truck turned up, price had changed. And this just went on and <laughs> on and on. And on. You'll, you'll see there's forums talking about a crazy guy on a beach in California with a Ferrari and a D-type Jaguar. That's Lou Brero. Those cars were supposedly buried. He supposedly got so peed off, he buried. The, and, and then the classic car crash happened. And then the, the Ferrari was only disinterred. 25 years ago or something like that. And those are other ones. I, I'm sure everyone knows the famous of that Dino that was buried in the backyard as well. So, I, so people say I have a penchant for burying Ferraris for some reason. <laughs> people in California, maybe, because that, that Dino was down in LA, wasn't it? Something to do with them. I don't One thing I did want to ask you, I had noted that the 49 winner was a Barquetta, yet the same chassis was sold to Lord Selsden, and then Selsden and Kinetti used that car to win Le Mans that year. Yeah. That was a closed car, though, wasn't it? For Le Mans, it, like it was, so it was open when it won the Million Million, and then it had a closed body put on it. If memory's fairly correct, because they rebodied the car, the Vignali. I have to go back and look. My, I, I, I'm terrible about remembering this stuff. I think it's tour. I think it's a touring, isn't it? Yeah, touring. But yeah, they they get it. So and that actually happens a few times in regards to like a, a car winning this and then get changed up. And I don't know if it just because of damage, and so they get it rebodied and do it. But yeah, it's um it's kind of impressive how that happens. And and you know it's same engine everything. Obviously they rebuild it and whatnot, but. It kind of goes to tell you in regards to, you know, some of these cars are pretty durable. You would think that they'd be fragile, but like going to Le Mans, racing for 24 hours straight. But, you know, obviously the race of the million, million, you know, going through, it could take some abuse. Obviously, you got two totally kind of different, I guess, tracks, I guess you would say, in regards to Le Mans to the million, million. 
it's kind of interesting when you delve into the chassis itself and look at its total history, what it did and who raced it and where. That's a whole different conversation in regards to going. I mean, you could have we could have podcasts on on single cars, you know, each uh, on one chassis number. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting though when you look at the one six six design language, the cues that it has, it is the precursor to the 250 Testarossa pontoon fendered car. And you can really see it in the nose where, let's say, shy of 10 years later, 1957, when the Testarossa comes out, where they got the inspiration for that car. So I, I think that's interesting. I mean, that's very typical of, you know, a lot of the designs back then is let's continue to refine that idea. Let's continue to, you know, pull from that playbook. To correct ourselves or correct me, Chinetti, they didn't rebody that car. No, he won it with as a Barchetta. Uh, it was the second place car of Bonetto that got rebodied. So when Chinetti got it and Stelzi got it, whatever, they basically the same car. They, they didn't change anything out. It was still Barchetta. And is that that's the one that he drove 23 whatever hours yeah. Yeah, it was and everything too. So which was you know impressive itself. But again, that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah, you get you get the impression. I mean, Selsden, I know nothing about him beyond that. It's not like he was a figure in British motorsport. You get the impression that he bought the car and, you know, did a few laps and then let this Italian Johnny win the race. Oh, yeah. Then he could, he ties his name to it. You know, hey, yeah. I won. Yeah, I drove yeah. for 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, but you know, and I think uh, I, I don't think, Eric, it was wasn't it Lever that drove for 23 and a half hours? And then Misty Gear and had to retire one year, 1950 or something. But yeah, Kennedy Kin did do, I don't think, he, I, I think Selston only, he drove a couple of times, but only for a total of about an hour and a half or something in the, in the course of the, uh, in the course of the. Yeah. So it's interesting you bring up the staggered start with the faster cars in the back. A couple of years ago, we were going to participate in a endurance race that was actually set up with that same strategy in mind. And the idea was that if the slower cars started first, it gave the faster cars obstacles to have to overcome along the way. But in theory, created enough distance between the vehicles that they would potentially finish all about the same time and therefore create this almost artificial dramatic photo finish, right? We're going to have to tidy this all up in the last two laps because now everybody's on the lead lap basically at the same time. And so I wonder if that was the idea in the spirit of competition to stagger the start that way. And if you think about it, the slowest Fiat that rolled off the line being first was probably a solid hour ahead of the fastest Jaguar that was starting, you know, 400 cars back. Oh, more than, more than. They would start the cars in the later years. They would start them leaving like at nine or 10 o'clock at night. So, you know, Moss and, you know, the year they won, Moss and Jenkinson went to bed as the race was starting and then got up and sorted themselves out, ready for their 722, you know, ready for their 722 start time. Some of that still carries today, but anyway. The millimeter, they had to they had to structure the millimeter that way because they could only close the country for a day. Yeah. If they'd have done it the other way around with the fastest cars first, the event would have taken two days because it was taking it would take the small cars like 18 hours to do the route. So it would have because one of the issues was 
if you were one of the faster cars and then had problems, the roads would reopen. So if you had a problem, you couldn't like, and you fixed the car at the side of the road, there would then be normal traffic on the road while you were still trying to race. If you can just imagine how eye popping that must be. So I have a, I have an interesting question about this. So you talked about Marzato's car, right? Uh, the Italian word for it is l'uovo, right? Or the egg, right? Which is the yep. nickname for this rebodied by Fontana 166mm, what also known as the 212 Export. And so why didn't he run his own car? That was technically an older chassis by a couple of years, you know, modified, all this kind of stuff. Where was it at this point? You know, obviously they owned it. It was their car. So wherever, because, and they obviously industrialists, everything like that. So obviously it was sitting wherever they would keep it. Problem was, it, it was, I want to say it's almost what, a three or four year old car. Right. Slow. I mean, you know, you're talking, the 340's got 300 horsepower. That 212, I think, had less than 200. Mm. You know, I have to go back really smart. So, I mean, you're just talking, not say night and day, but there was a huge jump in performance in regards to the two different cars. What a point of pride it would have been for him to win in his own car, even if it was underpowered. I mean, granted. Oh, yeah. The Italian ethos doesn't really allow for the whole underdog story. It's a very American concept. I think the moment you got out on the highway and felt, I mean, those, the 53 car that he used, those Vignale convertibles, they really, I mean, I, I love a big capacity V12 Ferrari sports racing car, but the early, the early 50s cars with the narrower tires and less than 250 horsepower, it doesn't by this era certainly with the vignale body by 53 this is when for me they it's transition is transitioning into this period of the the greatest cars ever made i'd put marzotto's as the marzotto's mille mille winner as as the beginning of that this is that this is the era when vignale did the portholes that buick copied you know the fender <laughs> portholes in the in in the side of, of, of the car in, and this is the era where Vignale's thinking about I'm going to make the grill as large as possible and I'm going to sink the headlights down I'm going to make it kind of squinty it's it's like it was Peter Schreier before Peter Schreier did it for Audi and they've done it more recently for Kia it came first with uh with Vignale in in my opinion You know, there's an absolutely magnificent book about Lancia, and it talks about how Lancia, and, and it's the engineer that Lancia had, or Lancia, you should pronounce it correctly, shouldn't yes. we? That, yes, yes, please. You know, that <laughs> Lancia himself was was gone in the by the post-war period, but we have this wonderful engineer, Di Virilio, and, and from it, we have this reborn Lancia that has, Lancia, that has so much engineering innovation and and promise and, and excitement and the book that that's that's published jeffrey goldberg i want to say it, it's called di virilio at the center and and that's really what i feel like the mille mille is it's it's at the center of all of of automobility really but certainly european automobility and and motor racing
This episode has been brought to you by Grand Touring Motorsports as part of our Motoring Podcast Network. For more episodes like this, tune in each week for more exciting and educational content from organizations like the Exotic Car Marketplace, the Motoring Historian, Brake Fix, and many others. If you'd like to support Grand Touring Motorsports and the Motoring Podcast Network, sign up for one of our many sponsorship tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. Please note that the content, opinions, and materials presented and expressed in this episode are those of its creator, and this episode has been published with their consent. If you have any inquiries about this program, please contact the creators of this episode via email or social media, as mentioned in the episode.